Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Have you ever had a job that followed you home? Like maybe you're so immersed in it that it feels like it's taking over your life? Well, imagine if you were an actor. You were living with a role for however long it takes to make a dozen or so episodes. Would it follow you home? I guess Felicity Huffman played a character named Barb Hanlon on the first season of the ABC show American Crime. Barb's a mother trying to find justice for her murdered son. She's also a bigot. It was such a razor's edge to say the words that she had to say, but from the point of view of doing something noble, that uh, that I felt it was a hard hard dance to do. And was it hard to put down? Uh, yeah, I, I had to be in a sort of dark state the whole time. <laughs> It was she was she was internally parched. It's bullseye. Coming up, I'll talk to Felicity Huffman about the difficulty of finding sympathetic ways to approach some pretty unsympathetic characters. At one point, while she was trying to find the right way to approach Barb Hanlon, her character on American Crime, she got some pretty good advice from her husband, also an actor. William H. Macy. Bill read it and he said, oh, I know exactly what to do. And he said, all she is doing is getting justice for her son. Don't fight. You don't have to get angry. Anything that gets in your way, try and get around it, but just get justice for your son. And I think you, can, as a mother or as a person, can endorse that. And indeed, I did. So that's, that was my whole focus. Later on, I'll talk to another actor, Anthony Michael Hall. He starred in several of the most beloved teen movies of all time. He'll tell me why the type of characters he played in the 80s, like Farmer Ted from 16 Candles, still resonate 30 years later. I think to be human is to be a geek. I mean, I think we all feel that way. I mean, if if we can equate it with vulnerability or self-consciousness, whatever, however you want to term it, but absolutely. And I'll present my tribute to the enduring hilarity of an endearing shirtless man who loves hot dogs. Yes, that's what I'm doing with my NPR show. That's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. Felicity Huffman broke through on TV, playing a character named Dana Whitaker. She was a TV producer in the sitcom Sports Night, which was created by Aaron Sorkin. Later on, she found a whole other audience starring in ABC's Desperate Housewives. Now she's back on ABC and Emmy-nominated, starring in their show, American Crime. It's an anthology show. She played a different character in each of the two seasons. In the latest, she's a school headmaster who finds herself dealing with accusations of sexual assault brought by one of her own students against members of another school's basketball team. Here's a clip from the show. The mother of one of her students comes to her. She says her son has been sexually assaulted by players on the basketball team. In this clip, the mom who's played by Lily Taylor, has come in to find out what the status of the investigation is. Huffman's character tells her that the students will be disciplined privately. You sat in that room, you were emotionally told a story that was barely coherent and made accusations, as you put it, based on things your son 
didn't say. He was drugged. His girlfriend was there. She saw him. He came in and made a statement. Six times you used the phrase, I don't know, or I'm not sure. You signed that statement. Just to say that I talked to somebody. Your son didn't volunteer to come forward. You're making a claim in his absence only after the picture surfaced. I came in as soon as I knew. We've taken disciplinary action. What are you doing to, to those boys? Tell me the what you're doing to the boys. The given your son is fair and it's correct. Uh, welcome to the show, Felicity. It's Thank great you. to meet you. Happy to be here. Nice to meet you. Um, American Crime is a pretty intense show. It left me emotionally drained. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, not least because I think that usually, especially on television, especially on network television, when we are presented with events as lurid as are the bases of the two seasons of American Crime so far, they are presented with a very simple moral structure. You know, they're presented in that movie of the week format, which is to say that when there's a crusading mother, she's always right. Mm. You know what I mean? When there are authority figures, they're either definitely evil or Mm -hmm. fighting for justice. Mm. You know, in season one, you're a you're you're a mother crusading for justice who's also kind of an awful person. Mm. Not a fully mm-hmm. awful person, but kind mm-hmm. of an awful person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> in season two, you're a school administrator who is just very deeply invested in the institution of the school. And I wonder, like, what do you find when you're playing a character like that? And I mean, deeply invested to the exclusion of, you know, feelings and justice to some extent. I'm making faces. Which You're making you can't faces do because on the radio. Your job is f- finding yes, empathy in these to, characters, to endorse right? The character, yes, yes. So when you when you sit down and you get a couple of scripts, however many you start with, um, how do you find what is the point of empathy that you find? Let's say starting with this season two character, a school administrator in a school that's being racked by a rape accusation. Sure. It's actually a great question because I feel like it is an actor's job that you have to figure out the angle that you can come into a character and the backdrop upon which you can endorse them because you've got to endorse them. You've got to love them and support them and and believe in their cause because I think no matter how misguided, everyone believes in their cause. And specifically to season two, Leslie Graham, that character, you know, John was very clear. He said – She's a politician to me. And I went, oh. And she went, he said, wait a second. Why does that immediately bring up that it's a negative? He said, you don't turn to a doctor and go, oh, there's such a doctor. Or you don't turn to a school teacher and go, yeah, but man, she's such a teacher. He said, politicians, by the very goal, is they're trying to find the common good. They're trying to have everybody bend and make concessions. So no one's quite happy, but it's for the common good. And that's what I thought Leslie Graham was doing, which is, you know, also anyone now makes a rape accusation and everyone immediately goes, well, that's true. I'm sure they're guilty, particularly if it's a woman. And and for good reason, because many times and for years, women were not believed. And John turned it on its head. And so suddenly it's a boy that's been raped. And the knee-jerk reaction is, well, that can't be true. 
And I was coming from the point of view of someone who had the whole school in their hands and said, that's a heavy-duty accusation. You can ruin a whole lot of people's lives. Let's figure out if it's true. But you're right. Her allegiance was to the institution because that's her job, man. So you um – I think you're at a point in your career where you are choosing to work because you want to work. That's my presumption. I, I don't know what your presumption. <laughs> I don't know what your bills are, but you were on a long-running network television series that was super successful, and yeah. your husband has a series right now that's yeah. been very successful. It's in like season six or seven right now. I right? think seven, yeah. And yeah. what made you choose to do this show? Um, well, first, let me disabuse you of something, <laughs> which is that I showered. No. Um, as a freelancer, as an actor, I mean, you always assume your last job is your last job. And I, I love to act. It's what I've dedicated my life to. So so I choose to work. Yes, in a way, I, I choose to work. But I also need work. Um, and I, I want work. And it's not like I'm picking and choosing. Um, I just didn't want to have this, like, weird idea of what I do. Um, but and, I mean, when I say that you choose, I mean, you're choosing to you're choosing to work or not work to some extent. Like you could say, you know what, I'm going to do I'm going to yes. do plays here in Los Angeles this year. Yes, I could do chose. that. Yes. Although I have now decided that friends don't let friends do theater. <laughs> After doing a play last year. Um, let's see. So what what drew me to American crime was um, it's always the script, you know, like they say, if it ain't on the page, it ain't on the stage. And um, I read American Crime and I thought it was really complicated and somewhat dark and somewhat confusing and, and truly wonderful. And so um, I wanted to meet with John Ridley. And there were a couple people before me in the lineup for that part. So I said, I'm really interested in the script. And they went, well, get in line. My agent said that. So I had to wait until a couple other people. Seems like a rude agent. I mean, the agent's job is to represent you. Not... <laughs> well, okay. They really said there are a couple people before okay, you. Can we it. wait? Um, and so I waited and those other people passed, which I'm very grateful for. And I got in line and I got to meet John Ridley. And as we talked about the script, um, I thought I'd like, to, uh, I'd like to work for this guy. And I've loved working for John Ridley. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to the actor Felicity Huffman. She's been nominated for her second Emmy this year for her role in the series American Crime. Were you scared when you realized what you had signed up for in season one, that your job was to figure out what you liked and identified with about, you know, a woman who's a bigot? Uh, I was scared in the pilot, and it was my husband who I, I read the script. I said, it's a fascinating script. How am I ever going to play this character? I mean, I don't want to just play this hard, angry bigot. Uh, it's just it's not interesting and it's alienating, and I don't think it serves John's script, but I didn't, didn't know what else to do. And Bill read it, and he said, oh, I know exactly what to do. This woman is doing one thing, and he said all she is doing is getting justice for her son. Don't fight. You don't have to get angry. Anything that gets in your way, try and get around it, but just get justice for your son. And I think you, can, as a mother or as a person, can endorse that. And indeed, I did. So that's that was my whole focus. You have chosen to look different in both seasons of American Crime. 
is that because you want to make some sort of external transformation that helps your internal transformation? Or is it because you're dealing with the legacy of having been the star of a hit network television show for eight years or whatever it was? Both. Um, the legacy of a television show is that, in a way, you're selling your future as well as your present. And you need to cleanse the audience's palate of what came before so that they're not like, oh, there's Lynette as a nurse and there's Lynette as a doctor. Um, I mean, you're you're selling your future the minute you sign the, the contract for the pilot because you've yeah. agreed to do six or seven seasons yeah. without even knowing whether that's going to happen. Yeah, yeah, you do. It's Yeah, and they call it TV jail, um, which I, I personally love. I love doing television. Um, so the first is, yes, I wanted the audience to be able to see Barb Hanlon or um, Leslie Graham, you know, hole and against a wide sky. And then... I went to what does the character need to do? And, you know, um, Barb Hanlon always just wanted to fly under the radar. She she didn't want people to notice her because she was well-dressed and she didn't want people to notice her because she's badly dressed. She just wants to fly under the radar because she's been so beat up. She just wants to be invisible. So that's it. And Leslie Graham, the second year of American Crime, she's a headmaster. I'm sure we've all experienced that, that part of their charm, part of, you know, their appeal, like Bill Clinton, is you go, what a cool guy. I'd like to have dinner with him. And so I needed Leslie Graham to be appealing, you know, that the women would go, I love that skirt that she's wearing. And the guys would uh, go, oh, she's she's attractive. I'd like to go talk to her. So there had to be a magnetism, hopefully, that I could do. So I changed the look and I changed the shape of my, my body and... Um, what do you mean when you say you change the shape of your body? Well, I had very form-fitting clothes, and then, man, I wore, like, Spanx and, um, and like, corsets, so I'm pretty straight. So I would go in and out so that the silhouette is different. The silhouette is very feminine. The silhouette is very soft because because she had to go in there and be a politician, and sometimes you kind of got to sneak into a room, and they go, oh, it's it's a nice lady. And then you can take control a little quicker. Let's take a listen to a clip from season one of American Crime. And my guest is Felicity Huffman. She played a, a mom named Barb whose grown son and, his, and her grown son's wife are brutally murdered or the, the son is murdered. The wife is left in a coma um, and probably sexually assaulted. And um, she's in this scene at a support group for the family of uh, crime victims and – She's talking to one of the counselors. Look, I'm going to say what I'm going to say. You can react however you... If you had three whites who went into a black's house, murdered him, raped his wife, you would have all these black leaders on Anderson Cooper talking about how it's a hate crime and how there ought to be some special treatment. But it happens to my son and his wife. Who's out there for them? I mean, nobody. Because, you know, hate crimes can't happen to white people. It's not true. They're blaming my son. They're trying to blame my son. I can only imagine that that role particularly must have been a tough one to, like, put on and take off as the red light on the camera went on and went off. It was really hard. 
uh, it was such a razor's edge to say the words that she had to say, but from the point of view of doing something noble, um, that uh, that I, I felt it was a hard hard dance to do. And was it hard to put down? Uh, yeah, I, I had to be in a sort of dark state the whole time. <laughs> It was she was she was internally parched. I think one of the things that was most interesting to me about Sports Night, which was your first big show, and it's now fifteen, maybe even a little more than fifteen yeah, years ago. I think so. Weird is that your character on that show, who was the producer of a you know sports center type sports news show, was the rare character who. Uh, has those qualities, oh, professional woman who's in charge, who actually is represented as a human being? Aaron Sorkin. That's because of Aaron Sorkin. You know, he's a wonderful writer and he writes women wonderfully. It must have been a thrill to have that part be your entree into, you know, into like folks recognizing you and, you know, at least in show business, if not on the street that much. Oh, man, it was grabbing the brass ring. Um I remember when that script came along and I thought, well, she's she's the third or fourth lead. So I, I might have a chance at actually at least getting to network on this one. And I knew Aaron Sorkin from theater in New York. So at least I had that. And uh, it was a dream come true. I just loved doing that show. I learned so much. I got to work with Tommy Shlami, um, wonderful director. Yeah, it was, it was the brass ring. I'm Jesse Thorne. Okay, so... You're an actor. You're working on a show with somebody that you happen to be madly in love with. What happens next? After the break, my guest Felicity Huffman will tell me what totally great thing happened when she and her now husband William H. Macy were working together on Sports Night. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for NPR and the following message comes from Soylent, the nutritionally complete, ready-to-drink meal in a bottle. And now introducing Coffeeist, a balanced breakfast blended with lightly roasted coffee and a hint of chocolate flavor. It's an energizing morning meal, too convenient to skip. And if you need another reason to feel good about squeezing breakfast into your day, for every case of Coffeeist purchased, a meal is donated to those in need through World Food Program USA. Receive 10% off your first subscription order at Soylent.com with the discount code NPR. Getting ready for a road trip, heading to the airport, or facing an ugly commute tomorrow? Take Bullseye and more with you on the NPR One app. The suggestions in NPR One are hand-curated to help you find the best from public radio and beyond. News, local stories, and your favorite podcasts. NPR One's ready to make a long trip better. Find NPR ONE on your app store today. I'm Jesse Thorne, and I'm curious about Jonathan Van Ness and his show, Getting Curious. What's a question that you really had to gulp before you asked it? Before I asked Kamau Bell about white privilege and why I don't like it. But that's like, that's the other beautiful thing about this recording studio that we sit in right here. Like, this is a safe space to ask still soul questions. <laughs> that's what Getting Curious is. It's a safe place to ask still soul questions that everyone needs to know. Getting Curious. Download it wherever you get podcasts. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to Felicity Huffman. She's been nominated for an Emmy this year for her role as Leslie Graham in the ABC show American Crime. 
let's play a clip from Sports Night. Because, oh, my God. Uh, as I said, I just love Sports Night. So uh, you were the producer. Your, your name was Dana. Dana. And uh, in season two, your husband entered, your real-life husband, William oh. H. Macy, as a sort of gruff ratings consultant who's telling everybody how to do their jobs and is probably right, but it's news that nobody wants to hear for And the then we part. conceived our first kid there. That's what happens when you work with your husband. Do you mean physically on the set of Sports Night? <laughs> well, not exactly on the set, but in the building. <laughs> See, this is the kind of information that you get your own radio show to learn. That's fantastic. Congratulations. Oh, thank you so much. Um, so, a lot goes on in those Disney buildings that people don't know about. Um, uh, yeah, Desperate Housewives taught us, you know, there's a lot of darkness behind those white picket fences. That's exactly right. But who knows what's going on behind those big round ears. <laughs> yeah. It's more salacious. Okay. Um, so anyway, uh, uh, in this scene from the show, um, your husband, Bill Macy, plays uh, Sam, who's this ratings consultant. And I don't remember how this happened, but your character had recently acquired a gun. Um, and right. and she walks into her own office to find him standing at her desk, kind of caressing and admiring the gun. Okay, yeah. What are you doing here? I heard about Brown Bess. You named my gun? It already had a name. This is a brown best second model Muscatoon. You like guns. I like this gun. What a shock. This gun hasn't had a lot of use. Uh, you can see here, the freezing is almost pristine. Well, I'll keep that in mind if I ever run across Lafayette. Lafayette was on our side, but I got the joke. Sam. This is a European walnut stock, and I could be wrong, but I think this outline is the military inspector's cartouche. Guns are disgusting. You think? Yeah. You ever hear the expression contempt prior to investigation? No. It's from AA. You should be careful with that. I am. Okay. Anyway, I wasn't hitting on you. What? I said... I wasn't hitting on you. I was just talking about the musket. What in the world would make you think I thought... Just playing safe. Oh, Bill Macy... <laughs> I think you kind of like him. <laughs> I do. I kind of like that guy. <laughs> I uh, When he was on the show, I asked him what he had learned from you uh, as an actor. And I wonder what you have learned from him as an actor. I have learned – gosh, I've learned so many things. We work together whether we're actually working together or not all the time. I mean I call him from set going, I can't figure out this scene. I can't figure out this moment. Um, so I learned from him always, and he's brilliant at story. I think in terms of acting, what I've learned is the words are just gibberish. They can mean anything. And I've heard that since acting school, and it wasn't until a couple of years ago that I went, oh, as Bill was explaining it to me, I went, oh, that's what you mean. And he always says, don't play the words. Um, and also the power of monomania in an actor, just doing one thing. Uh, I heard that your husband was originally uh, your acting teacher. <laughs> he was. I, I want you all to know that Jesse Thorne is blushing right now. Well, I'm um, in love with both of you. I, that's, <laughs> that's God's own truth. Uh, you're America's best celebrity couple by far, <laughs> not even close. <laughs> Amazing. I mean, look, Danny DeVito and Rhea, Rhea Perlman <laughs> are pretty great, too. Don't get me wrong. 
I don't. I'm not here to put them down. I'm here to elevate the two of you. That's hilarious. I love the company we're in. Um, I forgot your question because you were blushing. What What did you say? I oh, was, was asking you about him being your acting teacher. <laughs> yes, he indeed was my acting teacher. David Mamet and Bill Macy started a, a studio within NYU. You know, they have Strasbourg, they have this, they have that, and they started something called Practical Aesthetics, which is now the Atlantic uh, Acting School. And uh, Dave was our teacher, and and Bill was our teacher, and um, and I got to say, we he did not touch me until at least like six, twelve minutes after I graduated. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, but yes, he was, you know, he was the cool, smart Bill Macy, and you know, we were all undergrads, kind of going, oh, Bill Macy. And but I still could, am going, ah, Bill Macy. Well, he does the same for you. I've, I've, oh. I've asked him about it I'll live on stage in front of an audience. And oh, really? he could hardly contain his blush. <laughs> okay. I was trying to think of how to talk to you about Desperate Housewives because the question that I want to ask the most is that it's crazy that that was a network television show and a hit network television show what a weird, campy – like I'm not putting it down with any of these things. I think all these things are its best qualities. Like what a strange, campy, funny, ridiculous, amazing show that was to have been on network television when there weren't that many other choices. I guess it did kind of break the mold, didn't it? Um, yes, it was uh, – and of course now it's all – now it's – that's a milieu. I mean, now you have Ugly Betty, and uh, or you did have Ugly Betty. I mean, that's that's a certain taste Dirty that everyone wants. Dirty little liars, like yeah. whatever, Gossip Girl. Yeah. You know, I always thought it was really – I think TV shows are become a hit because of The Voice, particularly Desperate Housewives, not so much because of it's a – you know, it's it's a hospital show, and that's going to be a hit, or it's a it's an investigation, or it's a murder mystery show, but it's The Voice, and and – Mark Cherry's voice was he it's heightened reality. He makes fun of kind of the American suburbia, the American family. He makes fun of it and yet he does it in such a way that it's loving and it doesn't sort of destroy it. Um and it's delicious. It's it's like it's like chocolate. You don't exactly go, I'm not sure how, you know, nutritious this is, but let's eat it. Um so I think I think that's what the combination was. I mean, even just the name, right? Desperate Housewives. You wouldn't – it's an odd combo. So many of your roles, and not just Desperate Housewives, have been about motherhood. And you, you're like public face has been in part about motherhood for that reason. And I wonder if – I wonder how having that in public affects your life as an actual mother like – do you find yourself self-conscious about your real life because of your fictional life and, <laughs> and of the public face that's like a semi-fictional life? As I'm screaming at my two-year-old in the parking lot of Whole Foods, yeah, or which whatever. I've done. <laughs> Get in the f- car! Um, you know, the world I swim in is mothers. And I can't tell you the brilliant irony of that, the deus ex machina of that, because I have found motherhood, it's easier now, but to be so alienating and crazy making and difficult and impossible and infuriating and 
these dark emotions, the last person that you'd go, oh, let's make her the face of motherhood. Um, and I think what it has... But to be clear, I don't mean to interrupt you here, yeah. but as a parent myself, yeah. and my wife does a show about motherhood called One Bad Mother. She does? Yes. And I think that that is a universal experience. Like okay. you're describing... You know, I don't think there's anyone who isn't alienated by of those things. I don't think there's anyone who hasn't uh, yelled at their kid in a parking lot. (laughs) (laughs) I I would agree with you, but I would say particularly when my children were little, which was 12 years ago, that there was no conversation about that. None. I mean, the con and still the conversation is, isn't it great? Don't you love motherhood? And you can hate everything, but you can't hate your kids except sort of a little bit, you know, nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Um, and I think, I mean, I started a website, you know, called What the Flicka because I didn't feel there was any conversations out there. And I was so humiliated and so embarrassed that I was such a terrible mother and that I probably shouldn't have had kids that it's one of those things where I had to say it out loud. Otherwise, I would have imploded and driven myself into a lake, not my kids. And that was actually the start of Desperate Housewives, you know, that that mother that drove her kids into the lake. And Mark Cherry turned to his mother and went, oh, my God. Can you believe she did that? And there was a pause and his mother went, been there, done that. <laughs> well, not done there, but been there. <laughs> so I am happy to be in the group of mothers. I'm, I'm glad. I feel like it's one of the final icons. You know, we, we did it. We're hopefully doing away with the perfect wife. And I would like us to do away with the perfect mother. I think it would be incredibly liberating and, and good for the mothers and also good for our society. But has it affected me? Your first question, has my, have my parts affected my mothering? No, I would say my mothering has affected my parts. You know, there's a scene in Desperate, I think it was the first season, where my character's crying on a soccer field talking about how difficult being a mother is. And and I read that scene as it was written, and I went, that's not the feeling. This is what she would say. And so I just wrote it based on what I was going through. Um, So that's where I think the flow is from me to the part. Well, Felicity Huffman, I'm so grateful that you took the time to come in and be on Bullseye. It is uh, an absolute joy, and I've been such a fan of your work for so many years. I'm thrilled to be here. I've been listening to you for years, so thank you so much. (laughs) Felicity Huffman is Emmy-nominated for her role on ABC's American Crime. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Anthony Michael Hall got famous as a teenager. Not just playing a teenager, he was an actual teenager. In his roles in the 80s in The Breakfast Club and 16 Candles and Weird Science, he was actually like 15, 16, 17 years old. He did a year on Saturday Night Live, a strange kind of ill-fated year on Saturday Night Live, when he was 17. 17! So it's kind of not that surprising that his ship sort of ran aground. He drank and partied his way through the last few years of the 80s, and he almost destroyed his career. He got sober in the early 90s, and he got back to work, and he's worked steadily ever since. He was on NYPD Blue. He was on Chicken Soup for the Soul, the TV series. He starred on a long-running Stephen King series called The Dead Zone. He was in Freddy Got Fingered. He was in Foxcatcher. He co-stars in the upcoming Brad Pitt film War Machine. Right now, he can be seen in an independent high school drama called Natural Selection. Here he is in that movie. He plays a school security guard trying to tame some troubled kids. In this scene, he talks to the new kid at school who's just gotten in trouble for the first time. 
when I quit the force a while back. At the time, it seemed like the best thing to do. My wife hated it anyway. Why'd you quit? I had a close call one night when I was out patrolling alone. Close call? I'm sorry, that's that's none of my business. No, it's okay, don't worry about it. It's been a long time since I talked about it, that's all. It's a uh, home invasion. The guy was attacking a woman. He had a young daughter. He had a gun. I tried my best to talk some sense into him, you know? But, uh, things deteriorate pretty quickly, you know? Anthony Michael Hall, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. Thanks, Jesse. Good to be here. I'm a fan. I listen to, uh, listen to you all the time. Oh, thank you. Yeah, man. I found myself wondering as I was watching this movie, you know, immediately I thought, oh, there's Anthony Michael Hall legendary high school actor back in a high school again but it occurred to me that you know given that you were acting in movies when you were a teenager i wondered if you even went to high school <laughs> i actually did i mean i i uh i wasn't a a great student but i i went to high school in new york city professional children's school and uh i went to another school called st hughes on the upper west side near columbia university and and then as my career kind of took me on a course, I had tutors and that kind of thing. So it was kind of a hybrid of tutors, and, and I actually did finish high school. What was it? What's the high school experience like for someone who leaves in November to go shoot a movie or go be in a play? Right. Well, it's funny. I had a great tutor named Howard Isaacs at the time. He lived in Brooklyn with his family. And I just remember, I have actually funny memories that just came to mind of doing SNL, and I would be calling Howard to like schedule some school time <laughs> and I remember calling him and I was like listen can you can you come to 30 Rock because I'm going to be in rehearsal all day <laughs> so this this particular guy he was a great guy he, he was my tutor and uh, either he or I had the monarch notes so it became uh, you know it was an interesting you know sort of rushed way to approach high school I would do it in these intervals and I'd be literally in my dressing room with my tutor while I was doing SNL but at, at the end of the day I was able to finish high school and and uh, and uh, it was interesting. It was interesting. Yeah. One of your first parts I read somewhere was in a play with Woody Allen. Steve that, Allen. Steve Allen. Yeah. Okay. Another legend. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Steve Allen, the man of 10,000 books in The That's Tonight right. Show. That's right. Also a genius in a different way. Yeah. I worked with him as a kid. I, I auditioned for him at eight years old, and it was a play called The Wake, and I met him at the Waldorf Astoria. That's a play that he wrote, right? Correct. And it was about a day during his life during the Depression um, when in that era. They, they didn't have funeral parlors, I guess, so they would throw The Wake in the house. You, know, you so. can't accuse Steve Allen of being unproductive. Clearly, right? <laughs> wrote a couple hundred songs, books, yeah. Meeting of the Minds, yeah. created The Tonight Show. So anytime he was on an airplane, he came out, the, came out that exit gate with a book in hand. Absolutely. No, he was a brilliant guy. I remember as a kid, too, it's funny you said that, we would be traveling between cities, and he literally, in, in binders, would collect newspapers. I mean, he was such a, an avid reader and such an interesting man, uh, and so many talents. Yeah. Were you scared to do it? I mean, were you scared of that? There's a lot of hard parts of being an actor, auditioning and... Yeah, I can honestly say that's a good question. I mean, that's my least favorite over the years. But you learn to get more comfortable with that. And you learn, like any business, that being on time 
being polite, looking people in the eye, the basic things uh, you need to enlist as well. Then, then there's the part of you have to give a camera-ready performance. Too, I mean, what people, about when you're know. 12 years old? Oh, man, it was a trip. I mean, to, for me as a kid, I, it was really kind of like a hobby that spun into a career, quite honestly. So, I mean, it wasn't like I looked at it like, you know, this is, this is it or bust. It was kind of like I auditioned for commercials and kind of stumbled my way into it. Kind of. Vacation wasn't your first movie, but it was your first huge movie. Yeah. Um, w- w- how did you get that part? I had to go and meet with uh, Harold Ramis, the late, great Harold Ramis, um, who was really a great guy and, ha- and shared a lot of qualities that John Hughes had, actually. And Matty Simmons, who was the founder of, of Lampoon. So as a kid, I went to the Lampoon offices, and I remember auditioning and walking in and meeting Harold and, and Matty. And that changed the course of my life. I mean, they how, embraced how me. I was 14. Like? Yeah, a little kid. And from that, I mean, next thing you know, I was on the set, and they really were so loving and nice and welcoming. And, you know, all of a sudden there's Chevy and Brian Dole Murray and Eugene Levy and all these great comedians that I got to work with. It's interesting, too, because in that era, we actually made that trip. This is pre-CGI, right? So it was like we went to Colorado. We went to Arizona, the whole crew. So it was really, uh, you know, you're kind of a carny in this industry. So it was it was fun just being on the road with the crew. I mean, if you're fun. if you're 14 years old at that time and you're, uh, you know, you're a theater dork or whatever, <laughs> I'm not trying to put you in any no, boxes it's here. All good, yeah. But uh, I can only imagine what a thrill it was just to be in a room with Chevy Chase and whatnot. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because I had grown up, I mean, I'm 48, right? So in the 70s, I was a little kid, but I was watching Saturday Night Live. And that was like a big ask, right? Like, Mom, can I stay up watch Saturday Night Live? You know? Now, if you recall, in that era, so much of, I think, sort of the, the group thought of that time had so much to do with the politics of that era. You know, Vietnam had ended. It was in the mid-70s. And so that... Original cast is the coolest. I mean, to this day, they were just really great, great entertainers. So by the time I did the show, I mean, it was a transition year. You know, it was Lauren Michaels first year back. And, you know, we were on shaky legs that year, granted. But I remember as a kid watching the early shows in the 70s and then in the Eddie Murphy period, too. I was a huge Eddie Murphy fan. So, you know, suddenly when I was a senior in high school to be asked to be a part of the show, I was like, I remember just freaked out for about a month. I think I was just walking around the city, just kind of like, whoa, did I agree to that? Like, I can't believe this. I'm going to be a part of that show. Because I was at home a year or two before watching Eddie Murphy. It was cool. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. When he was a teenager, Anthony Michael Hall played geeks, right? Geeks without much of a shot with the girls. Robert Downey Jr., movie star now, not so much then, was friends with Hall at the time. And, And he says that in real life, you know what? Actually, I'm going to save that for after the break. Find out when we come back in just a minute. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Thanks for listening to Bullseye. Let me introduce you to NPR's music discovery podcast, Alt Latino. Hosts Felix Contreras and Jasmine Gard are your guides into the world of Latino arts and culture. And we're not talking a stodgy museum tour. Alternative approaches to traditional music, interviews with cultural icons like Rita Moreno and Carlos Santana, as well as contemporary vanguards like Calle Teche and Juno Diaz. Find Al Latino on the NPR One app and at npr.org slash podcasts. Attention Europe! This fall, Maximum Fun is bringing a bunch of your favorite podcasters to London. 
Catch Judge John Hodgman, International Waters, and Bullseye, all recording live episodes at the London Podcast Festival. We'll have fan meetups and we'll be joined on stage by a glittering array of celebrity guests. The London Podcast Festival runs September 22nd through 26th, and you can buy your tickets right now. Just go to MaximumFun.org. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to Anthony Michael Hall. He starred in some of the most iconic movies of the 80s, and he's got a new film out. It's called Natural Selection. Let's talk a little bit about the films that you made with John Hughes, for obvious reasons. So he wrote the story that Vacation was based on. Did he see you in that, or, or had you met him during the making of that movie? He did. I had not met him. And it was interesting because Vacation came from a short story that he wrote for Maddie in National Lampoon. And the original article, and John actually relayed this to me, it was an article called Vacation 58. And in the original piece that he wrote, the story is told through Rusty's point of view. And so from that, he wrote the script. I did not meet him. I met Harold and, and Maddie only. And then I got the film and did the film. And then it was after that when 16 Candles came up and then I kind of connected the dots and then I met him on the auditions for that. What did you think of him when you met him? Well, John rocked the mullet. The first thing you would see was the mullet. And he had this kind of very friendly, welcoming, kind of open face, you know. He had the glasses. So there was a little bit of John Lennon with the look. He definitely had the hockey hair. And he was just cool, man. He had a great sense of humor. He was really cool. He loved to laugh. And, you know, when we worked together as a kid, I remember this is long before Video Village. And, you know, so he would literally like these old movies you see, like Fellini standing next to the camera, like he would literally sit next to her under the camera. And not unlike Fellini, he would kind of talk you through the takes. But what made him so cool for me, Jesse, was like his writing was excellent, but he also had a real talent for empowering people and collaborating and kind of getting the best out of people. And with John, he was a great writer, but he was never precious about his scripts, so he would always open them up. And and for that reason, he got so much more out of everybody. It was great. I remember reading a lot of things, uh, uh, reminiscences about him when he passed away a few years ago. And one of the things that I remember most vividly is a lot of folks um, who were your age and were in the movies talking about how, you know, everybody was a professional actor and had worked on things. But the difference between a director who seemed like a director, like a 60-year-old dad grandpa... You know, which is what many people's idea of what a director was, because that's who got to make movies. Right. And John Hughes, who was a very different kind of guy, you know, a guy who banged out these movies in a room with the walls lined with records. That's exactly what what he was like. I mean, he did. I would go back to his house in Northbrook, Illinois, and, and I mean, I was like the third son. You know, and so I would go back home on the weekends and hang with him, and we'd watch Laurel and Hardy movies and watch old comedies, and he'd take us to record stores, me and Molly. I mean, he was a great guy. He was a really great friend to both of us, uh, and to many of the actors that that, we, that who had worked for him. But there was always a sense of like we would be conspiring on set together. Like for example, on Sixteen Candles, like a lot of that stuff would, you know, he would have me do things, and then there's a scene towards the end of the movie after one of the parties where I get stuck under a table. I mean, it wasn't scripted. I just showed up to shoot that scene and John looked over and saw this glass table and he was like, you think you can fit under there? I go, watch this. I'll make that happen. (laughs) So there was this great sense of collaboration that he kept alive, which was really cool. And And despite being so gifted and having such an output, he still kept it as a fluid thing. It was an open, uh, you know, it was the blueprint for us, but he would give us takes to try things and make things up and, 
or if you got an idea, I would say try that. You know, it was cool. Let's hear a scene uh, from my guest, Anthony Michael Hall, in Sixteen Candles. Um, so he played a, a character named the Geek. The Geek. Farmer um, Ted. And uh, in the movie, he, he's uh, he's basically just working up the nerve to approach Samantha, who's played by Molly Ringwald, on the bus. Memory lane. How's it going? How's what going? You know, things, life, whatnot. Life is not whatnot, and it's none of your business. <sighs> so you going to New Faces Dance tonight, or...? It's also none of your business. Are you inhibited about dancing in public? I mean, you don't have to dance. I mean, you can just stand there and me and my dudes and just be you. And... Sounds major. So, I mean, what's the story? I mean, you got a guy or? Yes, three big ones and they less went blood. So quit bugging me or I'll stick them all over your weenie ass. You know, I'm getting input here that I'm reading is relatively hostile. I mean, it's just... Go to hell. Very hostile. Did you know when you were a teenager that, to a great extent, you were the one that was playing John Hughes in these movies? That's an interesting question. I never thought of that. I mean, I certainly felt like his muse at a certain point. But on the first film... I think a lot of his life seeped into the other characters as well because I actually, when we did The Breakfast Club, I remember addressing this and asking him and he fell in the middle. He had two sisters and he was the middle child. And so like if you look at a film like The Breakfast Club, there's that whole speech that the late Paul Gleason, who was a friend of mine, he was a great guy, he gives about, you know, what you want to be when you grow up? I wanted to be John Lennon. That was John. And so that you know, you could you could see John and actually in all the characters and and parts of his own biography would seep in. So it's it's unfair for me to say like I was only his only muse, because truthfully Molly was and other people were, and I think portions of his own personal history kind of seeped into his films. Let's take a listen to a scene from The Breakfast Club with my guest Anthony Michael Hall. So everybody in the Breakfast Club, these high school kids who are in detention, if you haven't seen The Breakfast Club are sitting in a library and they're bonding and, and they're about to get released from detention. I was just thinking, I mean, I know it's kind of a weird time, but I was just wondering um, what is going to happen to us on Monday when we're all together again. I mean, I consider you guys my friends. I'm not wrong, am I? No. So on Monday, what happens? Are we still friends, you mean? We're friends now, that is? Yeah. You want the truth? Yeah, I want the truth. I don't think so. Did you ever feel like you were a geek when you were a teenager? Totally. I think to be human is to be a geek. I mean, I think we all feel that way. I mean, if, if we could equate it with vulnerability or self-consciousness, whatever, however you want to term it. But absolutely, absolutely, I felt that way, yeah. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to the actor Anthony Michael Hall. His new film is Natural Selection. I feel like I read a profile of you from the L.A. Times that was uh, from the late 80s. I know exactly which one you're talking about. And it described you on the set of, I want to say it was 16 Candles, as like, and and the thing that it said was, 
you weren't especially gorgeous and uh, you weren't yet a movie star, but all the girls were following you around uh, because you were just that charming. Oh, that's nice to hear. I don't know. <laughs> I appreciate it. I'll take the fifth, but thank you. <laughs> well, and you're not going to like this other thing that I'm going to bring up if you already took the fifth. Okay. Um, which is that I read an interview with Robert Downey Jr., who's been your friend for many, many years, and I know you're the godfather to one of his kids and stuff. Yeah. And he was describing you in your teenage years. And this will have to be bleeped on NPR, <laughs> but I don't want to misquote the great Robert Downey Jr., who said that in your teenage years, you were a <laughs> wizard. <laughs> Would you characterize teenage Anthony Michael Hall I, well, as a wizard? My mother used or to say, would you yeah. say your friend Robert Downey Jr. is a liar? Okay. Well, there you go. Wow, you set this up. You just, you just, I have a narrow track to follow. Um, yeah, I mean, my mother used to say, Michael, you're in love with love because I was certainly girl crazy for many years. And um, I don't know what else to say, Jesse. I did have fun. I wouldn't call Robert a liar, but, um, you know, I'm no cad. I don't know. I, don't, I was no playboy, but I, I definitely uh, had fun. <laughs> I definitely had fun. At, at what point did you feel... Did you recognize? And you know, like self awareness is difficult for teenagers. I know it was for me when I was. It's yeah, still for cut. all of us. Exactly. Let's be honest. Yeah. It's still hard for me. <laughs> um, but uh, I wonder at what point you recognized that there was some part of your life that was unmoored. Interesting question. Yeah, I think at a certain point in my twenties, I felt it, it became a lot harder to work. To be very honest, and I think I had such a made such a splash with the support and the love of John and, and the films that we were all a part of. And so it got harder to, to work, to be very honest. So, I mean, yeah, there's in, a lot in what, of, in what way did it be? Well, I think a lot of people had sort of maybe pigeonholed me and thought, you know, or maybe I had outgrown that cuteness and I was, you know, an adult and people didn't know what to do with me. I mean, even on SNL, I felt a little challenged by the fact that, again, it was a very competitive environment and I wasn't a comedian and all the writers want to be performing and all the performers wind up writing their own stuff because they don't necessarily feel that they've found a voice in some other writers writing for them. So, I mean, it's a very competitive environment, but just the whole experience of becoming successful and recognition and all that stuff is, it freaked me out, to be very honest with you. You know, it took me a long time, I think, to process the value of it and then get back to realizing that it was the craft and that I enjoy the work. And so I think for many years, what I did was I just focused on that and then I would kind of disappear. You know, I never liked playing the celebrity card or any of that. And, and quite honestly, it was very introverted and I had kind of developed into someone who was that way. And so I, I kind of like to just distance myself. I love doing the work. I love and feel very privileged still to be working in television and film. But then once the work is done, I like to disappear to my life. Did you choose to walk away from John Hughes' world? You know what? The truth is, is that he did write Ferris Bueller for me, and he and he wanted me to do Pretty in Pink and Ferris Bueller at a certain point. And um, I felt really kind of overwhelmed because I had done these three films with him, and my natural inclination, even as a kid, which I was, was just to try to do some different stuff and other work. And to this day, it's something that I do wonder about. And I've actually had talked to Joel Silver about it, of all people, um, around the time that John passed. And it's still in my heart to this day, really. I really wish we had reconnected. And I, and I hope he didn't you know, leave this earth thinking that 
you know, I didn't appreciate it because it would be the farthest thing from the truth. I mean, I wouldn't be here without him. You reached out to him at one point. Right? I did. You know, and the last conversation we had was amazing. He called me in 1987 with John Candy on the phone, and we had an hour and a half of laughs, man. It was incredible because they had become really good friends. They did that picture of the great outdoors together, and they wound up, like in the film, vacationing with their families, like Aykroyd and Candy. The Hughes and the Candies came, became very close. So that was the last time I talked to him, and it was bittersweet when I look back at it now because I, I really loved both of those guys. Yeah. When you were 26 or whatever, did anybody um, ever explicitly say to you, oh, we're not going to hire you because of you when you were 17? Or was it something that you had to... You know, it seems almost even more painful to have to infer that, mm. which is often how it works in, in show business. It's the latter. I was just going to say it's the latter. It's by omission that people can kind of burn you. You know, you don't get feedback when you're an actor or an actress, as many out there will, will attest to. You know, you go in and you, you give a camera-ready performance. You put your heart on your sleeve. And often you don't even get feedback, even if you're not the right guy or gal, uh, or gal for the job. So it's dehumanizing it can be it can be very off-putting and you're never given that feedback um even in the case where you don't want to get the job you still would like to know how i you know how you did so there's a lot of things that lead um that can kind of make your head spin in terms of you know acclimating to a life in the arts definitely and certainly one of them is is when you're not working you know because when you're working that's always the best publicity people are happy to hear about it and it can also trigger other work but um you know there's also a lot of challenging uh, sort of dry periods that you got to, you know, find ways to keep your own mind inspired and um, and spiritually. I think as a person too, I'm always very conscious of that. That I really I try to check in with my mind, body, and spirit, making sure that I'm staying on top of things. So I think that it did take me a long time to kind of process, you know, the first ten years of my career, um, and then with resolve to decide, okay, I'm going to keep going. How do you check in? I think it's also I think it's also a, ch- a stress thing too. When you're stressing out, it's important to kind of check in with yourself. And oftentimes, I'm always pushing and, and looking for other work, or you know, sort of analyzing the industry. And and I have a, a great guy I work with John Branstein, who's my manager for years. And we're like brothers. I mean, we just kind of analyze the industry together, and you know, you just kind of attack the work every day. But the real pleasure for an actor is when you have the job. That's actually the real joy. So the rest of the year, seeking the work and, and pursuing it is really the work. What's it like for you to talk to people, and I'm sure this is just a huge part of your life, whose adolescences were affected by work that you did as an adolescent? And I don't just mean people who are you know, the same age as you, but a couple of these movies that you were in are touchstones for later generations of adolescents as much as they are for folks who were 17 in 1986. Yeah. No, well said, Jesse. I appreciate that. You know, I do these Comic-Cons, these signings, and I have fun with them. And, you know, even my own family, like, they weren't really sure why I was doing these. And I've been doing them since the dead zone went off the air. And, of course, I make money and it's a nice thing, but I really enjoy doing them because I feel it is spiritual work because I go to a str- some city I haven't been to or that I have been to, and you're there in a convention-style setting, but it's a very interesting market and niche, that market. And what it's done for me has been really helpful because I've come into contact with some younger generations of kids that are not even millennials, kids that are teenagers now, um, that are really affected by like a film like The Breakfast Club. And I've had many years to think about this. With that film in particular, I think the reason it resonates is that it is a sort of 
deconstruction of stereotypes. And what happens, I feel, is that when people watch that film, something happens either consciously or unconsciously where people start projecting themselves onto whatever role that they kind of relate to. So to your question, yeah, I mean, it's been very humbling and very exciting to see these films live on, particularly the John Hughes films. And that one in particular, that it's really struck a chord with younger generations. I mean, you can't ask for more as an artist to be a part of something that endures in some level. You've been like a regular working actor for the last 15 years. You know, you were the star of a successful cable show. You've been in tons of things, ranging from huge things to Oscar things to little independent movies like Natural Selection. Yeah. If you could walk into audition rooms with a different name at the top of the resume and at the bottom of your headshot, <laughs> would you? Interesting. No, because I I think that um, I'm someone who's always like forward thinking. I really am, you know? And I think I'm... I. I don't mind looking back when people remind me of these films, but I've always been sort of forward-leaning and forward-thinking about my work. John Hughes and that whole experience was amazing. There will never be anything like that in my life. And from that, it led me to incredible other artists you know, that I've worked with, like uh, Tim Burton or Chris Nolan. So you really learn as you go. I just embrace it all. I just am grateful for it, and I'm so thankful. Like, and every time I'm here in LA— You seem very ungrateful. No, no, no. I know, I know, I know. No, but really, like, when I go on a lot, for example, like, and I have an audition, I'm on, like, the Paramount lot or something, it's never lost on me, man. I, it's like, wow, I'm some part of this, you know? I've, I've worked with so many of these people, and it's been so, like, it's a wonderful life, man. You know, it's been really great, great experience. I don't know. I just, I, I really respect and I love what, what the industry represents to the world. Well, Anthony Michael Hall, thank you so much for joining me on Bullseye. I appreciate it, man. I had a great time with you. Anthony Michael Hall, one of the co-stars of the new film Natural Selection, which is uh, on VOD now, and uh, also a celebrated actor and <laughs> wizard. <laughs> Every week, we like to close the show with a recommendation from me, your host. It's the outshot. So a comedy sketch is based on a premise. You take one absurdity, one incongruity, one central thesis, and then you explore it, usually by heightening it, making it bigger and bigger. Like, take, I don't know, the cheese shop sketch from Monty Python, one of the most famous sketches ever. The premise, sometimes comedy people call it the game of the scene, is that the shop doesn't have any cheese, and John Cleese is mad that the shop doesn't have any cheese. So it goes from this. Well, uh, how about a little Red Leicester? I'm afraid we're fresh out of Red Leicester, sir. Never mind. How are you on uh, Tilsit? Never at the end of the week, sir. Always get it fresh first thing on Monday. Tish, tish. To this. Uh, tell me something. Do you have any cheese at all? Yes, sir. Now, I'm going to ask you that question once more. And if you say no, I'm going to shoot you through the head. Now, do you have any cheese at all? No. What a senseless waste of human life. It takes like three or four minutes, the length of a comedy sketch. And you can season that a lot of different ways, but that's most comedy sketches. And some of my favorites don't even have, you know, physical bits around the edges or fancy character work or funny voices. It's just a great game 
well played. One time, Donald Glover told me that the character of Dr. Spaceman, or Dr. Leo Spachemin, on 30 Rock was fun to write because when you sat down to write it, and Don used to write on 30 Rock, you just got to play the game Bad Doctor. Tracy, you are going to die. What? No! When I tell you who I'm dating, Squeaky From, she is difficult. Anywho, I have the results of your physical. Tracy, you are going to die. What? No! Anyway, all of that is prelude to this one dumb comedy sketch that I love so much. It's from a very funny show that ran on IFC a few years ago called The Whitest Kids You Know, but my hope is that it will be on YouTube forever. There's a doctor and a patient. The patient's a young guy. He's shirtless, a little bit portly. See if, by listening carefully, you can identify the game here. How many hot dogs do you eat a day? How many hot dogs? Yeah. Jeez. Uh, I don't know. I mean, you know, some days I could eat a couple, and some days I don't eat any. Okay. Well, let's just say for an average. Take your whole week and try to figure out what your daily amount would be. I have no idea. Well, just try. Okay. A whole week? Average per day would be something like, I don't know, seven? Yeah, that's right. Say it together. It's Guy Eats a Lot of Hot Dogs. Well, I uh, wake up and I take a shower and I, you know, get ready for work. And I go downstairs and I have a bagel and something for breakfast. And something? <laughs> a hot dog. Hot dog, okay. I mean, I do usually eat a hot dog there. Okay. Or actually, more specifically, the game of that scene is, is probably hot dog delusion. I mean, I can play more of the sketch for you, but that's pretty much what happens in it. You know, sometimes something that simple is all you need. What happens at lunch? Oh, lunch. Well, I mean, some days I just blow through lunch, you know, because how busy I am and all. Really? Well, pretty sure I did that once. Okay. Well, on the days that you're not blowing through lunch, what do you have? Well, on those days, sometimes it could just be a salad. Could it? Yeah, well, but it's usually... It's usually hot dogs. Yeah, it's usually hot dogs. Anyway, I gotta go, you know, go eat some hot dogs. That's my outshot. How many hot dogs? I don't know. Anywhere between one and four? Four hot dogs. Yeah, it's probably safe. We've come to the end of another episode of Bullseye. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Dan Gallucci. Production fellow at Maximum Fun, Kara Hart. Production assistant, Christian Duenas. Senior producer, Colin Anderson. All our interstitial music provided to us by Dan Wally. Thanks to the Go team and their label, Memphis Industries, for our theme music. If you'd like to hear any of our past shows, all of them are free. Go to MaximumFun.org. And guess what? This isn't the end of popular culture in audio-only form. You can also check out our sister show, Pop Rocket. Every week it's a roundtable discussion of the things that are great. 
in popular culture, every form. Uh, it's hosted by the great comedian Guy Branham, who happens to be sitting here with me right now. Guy, tell me, if people go into iTunes or their favorite podcatcher and search for Pop Rocket, what is popping on Pop Rocket this week? Hey, Jesse, this week we are finally choosing our official summer jam. Uh, we're going to talk about Sia. We're going to talk about Rihanna. We're going to talk about the VMAs. We are going to determine what the single most delightful song of the summer was. Check it out, Pop Rocket, wherever you download podcasts. And I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.